We're, uh, we're celebrating Advent along with the church around the world, and uh, this is the third Sunday of Advent. We didn't get to be together the second one, but um, this third Sunday of Advent. So we're continuing to look at passages that help us think about the incarnation of God, the incarnation of the Messiah. That term just means uh, taking on flesh, God enfleshing himself in the person and work of Jesus. So we're going to look at an, an Old Testament prophecy. This was the bulletin that we were going to give to you. If you notice, the date is still December 9th on the front. But uh, we're just going to pick this back up and look at it this morning. So we're in Isaiah 40, Isaiah chapter 40. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just look in the bulletin. If this is your first time here, welcome. Special welcome to you. So glad you're here. You know, when you think about a prophet's message. I mean, a big chunk of the Bible is uh, the, the writings of the prophets. Prophecy is a big part of the Bible. It was a big part of Jesus' Bible and the Apostles' Bible and, and our Bible. Um, but when you think about a prophet, I want you to think about when a prophet came with a message for God's people, I don't want you to think about it like a preacher. And I want to be careful how I say this because this could sound, this could come across wrong, but. You know, when a preacher preaches, you can just kind of, you know, assess it like, oh, that was good, or that wasn't good, or you're kind of indifferent to it, but you can just kind of, you know, you can just kind of almost like watch it like you're, you're watching a talk. And certainly that happens sometimes with the prophets. Prophets would come and they would speak for God. And, uh, and that's the main thing a prophet does is speak for God. The main job of a prophet is not to tell the future, although sometimes they do. And Isaiah is going to in this passage. But the main thing a prophet does is speak for God. He, he foretells. And uh, certainly God's people could ignore prophets, but if you were a devout Israelite and a prophet came to you with a message, it was very alarming. Because when a prophet came with a message, it was one of two kinds of messages, it was one of two kinds of oracles. It, it was either an oracle of blessing, and that's the one you want. But that's not usually the one you got uh, because of the history of, well, because of our history, because of the history of God's people. Often what you got was an oracle of woe. And we really don't have an English word that captures what that would mean. Um, to hear an oracle of woe from a prophet, if you really believed it, would probably do something to your insides along the lines of if you got blood work done, lab work done at the doctor, and then they called you back that afternoon and said, we need to get you back in immediately, even today if possible. And you know that's not good. And so you're driving there and you're wondering what is happening to me. Or uh, let's say you have teenagers and... Um, and uh, they go out to meet friends, and you say, just try to come in quietly, and you fall asleep, and then you're woken up by a call at 2.15 a.m., and it's the highway patrol. And you know this is not going to be good. I mean, I think the way your insides are at that moment, that's what it would be like to be a believing Israelite, and a prophet comes with a prophecy of woe. Uh, we're just jumping into Isaiah this morning, so I feel a little bit at a disadvantage because this is way into Isaiah. 39 chapters have gone before this. Those 39 chapters 
you could sum up as bad news. And Isaiah speaks an oracle of woe almost a dozen times by the time you get to this passage. At one point, he even pronounces a woe upon himself in Isaiah 6. Uh, God's people are not caring for the poor. God's people are living like the haves and the have-nots, and it was never supposed to be that way in Israel. God's people have been uh, engaging in idolatry. They've become worldly. They're on autopilot. They're being religious. And uh, God says, that's it. And uh, he, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are so bad that there's a lot of Old Testament scholarship that says Isaiah 1 through 39, those chapters are written by one author and chapter, chapters 40 and forward are written by a different author. Because when you get to chapter 40, it sounds so incredibly different. So where, where I want to pick up this morning as we're thinking about Advent is Isaiah 40 when you round this massive corner in the prophecy of Isaiah from bad news to something else. This would be about the 700s B.C. And up to this point, bad news about their lives then and who they are then. But when you get to Isaiah 40, here's what Isaiah says. I'm not even talking to you now. I'm talking to your descendants. Your descendants are going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And so I want you to hear what I'm going to say to them. The context is very bad news. Isaiah 40. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah... Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. 
and gently lead those that are with young. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, your word is real food. It is red meat and hearty drink. And we pray that it would be that for us this morning. That part of our worship of you this morning would be that that we really intently listen to you. And you speak to us and show us yourself. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I think a lot of you have heard of the term of an intervention. An intervention. Uh, You may have been part of an intervention for a friend or a family member. You may have seen an intervention uh, on TV. I don't know if it's still on. At one point there was a reality show just about interventions. But an intervention is where you have someone who's really in crisis. And typically it's a crisis of addiction. And and their behavior is just so self-destructive that a group of people who care about that person, usually immediate family, closest friends, they, uh, they plan out an intervention, usually with a counselor. And, and what it often looks like is that they coordinate their plans. They, they find a way to bring the addict, the person, to a designated spot, and they are already all there. And, you know, this is not for them to jump out and surprise the person, but when that person comes into that room or that space, everyone's there and they have them, and they just begin to speak into this person's life. And person after person after person says, I love you, I care about you, I miss you, because we don't have you anymore. Uh, I'm so concerned about you, will you please get help? And the next person says it, and the next person, and the next person. And, And oftentimes there's like a plan to take that person immediately to go get help, treatment. Uh, Why so much planning? Why so many people involved? Why can't it just be a one-on-one talk? Why do interventions? Well, lots of reasons. I mean, some of you have more expertise in this than I do. but, uh, but, But here's the consensus is that when you're addicted, when you're truly an addict, it doesn't matter what it is. Addiction is so loud that before anybody can get any traction... Person after person after person after person has to say, I love you, I love you, I care about you, I'm committed to you, I miss you, I love you, I'm for you, I'm in your corner, I'll walk alongside you. Person after person after person has to say it and say it and say it to maybe, for a little bit, be louder than the addiction. And then maybe they can hear Isaiah 40 is like an intervention. I mean, God himself through the prophet has let the bad news come at them full speed. It's bad and it's going to be bad. I'm angry. And I should be. And he doesn't mince his words. I'm going to mention that more in a second. And then after all those words, he says, all right, now now I'm going to talk to the people who are in Babylonian captivity. Over 100 years from now, 
the descendants of the first recipients of Isaiah's prophecy. And here's what I'm going to say to them. I love you. And I'm going to rescue you. So I, here, here's what I want to think about this morning is you know, the, the reality of bad news. But I, I want to think in terms of news that's even louder than the bad news. So let's look at it in, in, in two ways. For the context of the news that we're going to hear, and then the news. And he does call it good news in this prophecy. So the context of the news, and then the news. What's the context? Now, and I've already said this, is that Israel is living in a divided society, the haves and the have-nots. Israel was never supposed to be that way. They have either dabbled or fully engaged in idolatry. They've become worldly. They're still engaging in a form of religiosity, and God says, that's it. Uh, I won't quote it, but it it literally starts in chapter 1. You can open up to Isaiah chapter 1, and God says things like, your gatherings, your assemblies, your convocations, your festivals, I hate them. My soul hates them and my soul is tired of them. When you spread your hands to me, and that's the language of prayer, when you spread your hands out to me, I am not going to listen to you. That's bad. And then you get all the way, and it's, you know, woe this, woe this, woe, woe, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. You get to chapter 39, right before this. And God says to King Hezekiah, Your son and your people will be taken into captivity by Babylon. And man, this is a pagan empire, a pagan realm. That would be so frightening to hear as Israelites because because here's the thing. Israel is in covenant with God. And what God says in the books of Moses is, here are the terms of the covenant. If you keep these terms, here are the blessings. If you break these terms, here are the curses. And one of the worst curses was that if you break the terms of the covenant, you will be taken into captivity by people who don't know me and suffer the consequences. And God is saying, that is about to happen. That's the context of the news. You get to this chapter, and the tone completely changes. Bad news for 39 chapters, and then you get to this chapter. And look at the way, look at the way, just look at the language. Look in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Now, I want you to think about this like an intervention. You're going to have to say this so loud and so often that maybe the people can hear it. Because what I'm saying here is not to people in the 8th century B.C. What I'm saying here is to your descendants who are in the Babylonian captivity. They live under pagan rule. I want you to cry to them. And speak tenderly to them. Verse 3, a voice cries. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Look in verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up. What is God saying? 
I'm bringing you news, and you're going to have to say it so loudly that maybe the people will hear it. Because their circumstances are so hard, they are so heartbroken, they're so devastated by this Babylonian rule and their captivity, that everything that they're feeling and experiencing and seeing is going to make it seem like this good news is not true. You're going to have to cry this good news till they believe it's true. Um, some of you that might know the performer Andrew Peterson, and uh, he performed here a couple of weekends ago and did his um, Behold the Lamb of God performance, and it's the first time for me to see it, but saw a bunch of you there. It was a performance at Mitchell Road Presbyterian. Saw a lot of you there and friends from, from town there. And uh, one of the singers in Andrew's group, uh, Jill Phillips, she, she said something interesting about her own life. She said that she had been meeting with a spiritual director for years. And that, and I believe she said this came out of the Ignatian tradition. At first I thought she said Ignition. I thought, what's Ignition? So, I don't know. But uh, I, think, I think she meant Ignatian. And it's a practice where you meet with a spiritual director and this director reads you biblical texts about the love of God for two years. And she said, after two years of hearing it, and being reminded of it and marinating in it, maybe the needle moves. Why is that? Man, because the world is so shattered. And we are so shattered. And we have let ourselves down and others down so often so devastatingly and the world is so sad and the older that we get we realize life is so much harder than I thought it would be that everything that we feel or at least majority feel and see and experience is saying bad news bad news bad news bad news and this is all there is it gets really loud I mean, we ha- I don't think any of us can really understand what it would be like to be taken captive and to live in a different country that doesn't know your God. And you've got all these promises that you're the apple of God's eye and you're trying to make sense of, I'm the apple of God's eye and I live in a pagan-dominated world. That's loud. And God says, yeah, it is loud. I want you to cry this so loudly that it's louder than everything that's coming at them. And you know, that's really worth pausing and thinking about, that it's always, guys, it's always been our history that good news is not coming into like our ideal, intact, squeaky clean, awesome lives. And it makes us feel even better. But good news has always been coming into lives where what's being run through the amplifier is that life is hard and I'm disappointed and I'm sad and I don't understand my circumstances. It's always been that way. And God is saying the good news is for that. It's not for pretend world. It's for that. Do you know one of the reasons why we need to do this? I mean, this is just, this is just such a blip in our lives. I understand that most of your life is not in here. Most of my life is not in here. I think about in here a lot. 
But most of my life is not in here. There's all the rest of Sunday and there's all the rest of your week. But one of the reasons that we need to do this is that you've got to hear. All of us need actually to hear a person like a herald. A herald is a messenger for a king. We need somebody to stand up and herald the good news and say, I know you don't feel this right now. I know that your circumstances are screaming something differently at you. But there is good news for you. And if you neglect exposure to that, it will really take a toll on your soul. I'll use myself as as an example. I think when God really woke me up and brought me to himself was 10th grade. It wasn't dramatic. I'd grown up in the church, but I think that's when the lights came on. And uh, the summers after 11th and 12th grade, I lived with my mom in New Orleans. And there just weren't a lot of, and I love New Orleans as a city, but there just weren't a lot of great church options that, that I could find in New Orleans at that time. There's better ones now. And, uh, and I was a young Christian, and man, I, I, was, I was growing like a weed. And I was learning stuff, and I loved reading my Bible, and I loved praying, and I loved my church. And I, you know, I might the first few Sundays of those summers, 84 and 85, I would try to find a church. After a while, I just stopped going to church. And just even as a young Christian, as a teenager, by the end of the summer, I felt like a shell of my former self. I was reading my Bible. I was praying. I was trying to, like, seek the Lord, talk to friends on the phone, all that. But I... we need a herald to stand up and say... This is true. I'm going to cry it to you. And whether you believe it or not, this is true. God says, do that to them. So what's the news? Let me start out by saying what it's not. The news is not, you can be strong and power through this. (laughs) And there's an entire cottage industry of books and podcasts to say that to you. Uh, Look in verse 6. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Now, at one level, that's good news, because that means the Babylonians are grass. But you know what? It's bad news, because so are the Israelites. Everybody's weak. Everybody withers. No, the good news is not, you know, tap into your own awesomeness and radiate like a supernova on everybody with your awesomeness. So what's the news? A few things here. First off, the good news is God has not changed. Have you changed? God has not changed. Uh, Look at the the first verse. If this sounds familiar to you, you might have heard, Comfort ye my people, and Handel's Messiah comes straight from Isaiah 40. But listen to this. Comfort. This is people, he has has chewed out their ancestors for for 39 chapters. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And what should that remind us of? What is the refrain in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? I will be your God and you shall be 
my people and to people who have engaged in idolatry and been worldly and neglected the poor and have not done justice and have run after other gods. He says, I will be your God and you will still be my people. Comfort her. Look at what he, calls, what he calls people in Babylon in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. They're in Babylon. He says, call her Jerusalem. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, I know this doesn't really compete with us because we've never experienced, but can you imagine if there was a foreign invader of, of the United States and if, uh, if an enemy took over the entire United States where it was not the United States anymore And what if all of us were taken a thousand miles away, let's say taken out west and put in an internment camp. And so there is no South Carolina and there is no United States anymore. And what if God came to us with a messenger? What if he called us Greenville? Wouldn't that feel good? What if he called you Greenville? That's what he's doing. He says, talk to Jerusalem. She's in Babylon, but she's Jerusalem. And she's Jerusalem because I don't change. Look in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And I'm kind of sad that people like me, preachers, have turned that into just kind of like a little something we say before or after Bible readings. You know what I'm talking about? Like where a minister reads a passage from the Bible and they might say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's look to him briefly in prayer. And that's not wrong to do that, but this is saying, I mean, if you saw an angel standing at the entrance to DPC and it stood there always, it wouldn't take more than about a generation or two before we were tempted to start worshiping it. Like, what if there was an angel visibly posted at the entrance to downtown Prez and it always stood there? And it was there our whole lives, our kids' whole lives, our grandchildren. I think after a while we would be tempted to worship because we don't have a context for anything that lives like that and stands there and doesn't change. And God is saying, that's that's what my word does. It will stand forever. It's not that God doesn't care what you and I think or feel, but he's saying, irregardless of how you think or feel, What I say to you will stand. And it won't be thwarted. Second part of the good news. First part is God has not changed. Second part, He is coming. Uh, Look in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Why is the glory of the Lord going to be revealed? Because the Lord is glorious And he's going to be revealed to you. Look in verse 10. Or actually start at the end of verse 9. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. He is coming to you. But look at the way it says he's coming to you. Look in verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, if you've heard Handel's Messiah 
And if you've heard this passage quoted in the New Testament, your mind goes one way. If you had never read the New Testament, like the people that first got this prophecy, if you'd never heard Handel's Messiah, and you grew up Jewish, and you heard someone say, God is going to come to you. Yahweh is going to come to you in the wilderness. Where would your mind go? The Exodus. What is God saying? There will be another Exodus. It will be an Exodus for people in captivity. You know, when Israel was in Egypt, they were in captivity. Pagan rulers. God is going to do another exodus. The Exodus. And the valleys are going to be brought up. And the mountains are going to be brought low. And he's not talking about topography. He's talking about our insides. Are you arrogant? God will lower you. Are you crushed? God will raise you. Is your way crooked? He will straighten it. Because he's coming. He shall do it. God is coming. And then it says this. In in case there's fear that this God who has let you have it for 39 chapters, that he's coming, in case that sounds like bad news, look at verse 11. What will he do when he shows up? Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And there's a whole biblical theology of God carrying his people. And I know that we have people in here, single, married, divorced, children, no children. I know we have the whole gamut. But if you are a tired parent, be sure you hear this last part. He will gently lead those that are with young. He won't be the shepherd that overdrives the sheep with a young lamb trying to keep up. He will gently lead those with young. Um, It's generally agreed, pretty widely agreed by New Testament scholars that the first gospel that was written was not Matthew. Now, that's the first one in our New Testament. But it's generally agreed that the first one written was Mark. Uh, And if that's the case, if they were in order chronologically, Mark would be the first gospel in the New Testament. In fact, I've seen an edition of the Bible where Mark was put first. Now, if it was like that, you know what would happen right after Mark opened? if, If it was set up like that, if you open the New Testament and there's the gospel of Mark, you know what would be the first thing Mark quotes at you? Is Isaiah 40. You could argue that the opening words of the opening gospel are Isaiah 40. And it's Mark saying this. We got out of the Babylonian captivity. But you know, then there was the the Medes and the Persians. And they were the superpower. And then there was Greece. And then there was Rome. But really, now there is Rome because Mark's writing in a context where Rome rules the world. When is all this going to be fixed? And Mark is saying, 
God has come in a way that none of us were anticipating. That God has come in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. That whether we can ever get our minds around this, whether you can believe this right now, whether you can feel this right now, Yahweh took on flesh and he's Jesus. He's come to you. And when you, and when you watch how Jesus talks, what's his big concern? I mean, let me ask you this. What do you think the Jews th- thought that they needed rescue from in his context. In Jesus' day, what did the Jews think they needed rescue from? I would have to believe the number one answer would be Rome. Do you ever see Jesus square off with a Caesar? Do you, do you see Jesus rail against Rome? What is first and foremost to Jesus? How about this? Do, do, you, do you have anybody that you care about that's paralyzed? Do you have a loved one that's paralyzed? If you care about someone who's paralyzed, the number one thing you'd like to do for that person is take away their paralysis. When some friends who loved their friend who was paralyzed brought their friend to Jesus, actually lowered him through the roof in front of Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, Jesus looks at a guy who's paralyzed and there are no motorized wheelchairs, and there are no cool graphite wheelchairs. There is no federal assistance. He looks at somebody who's paralyzed. Do you know what Jesus said to him? He does eventually say, get up and walk. But you know what's the first thing he says to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Do you know why Jesus said that? Jesus said that because the number one thing that Yahweh became flesh to come and rescue us from, really this is a package, sin and death. The great problem is not Babylon. The great problem is not Rome. The great problem is not what political party you most have trouble with. Our great problem is sin and death. And God became flesh to rescue us. Do you believe that? What, what do you feel that you most need rescue from right now? In a way, what I'm asking you is, what is loudest to you right now? Is it, is it a physical problem? Is it, is it singleness? Is it the state of your marriage? Is it the collateral damage from a financial mistake? Because to be a herald of good news is not to stand up here and say, hey, don't make such a big deal out of that. It is a big deal. If you're sick or you're financially struggling or you're in relational pain, it is a big deal. But the problem is that that gets to be so loud that you can't hear what the biggest deal is. And it's this. You cannot fix your sin. And you cannot fix your mortality. And God loves us so much that he wants us to radiate with his own love 
in his own character, as it were, to reflect back to him his own beauty and to never die. And God became flesh to rescue us from sin and death. Do you believe that? Because that is the good news. The good news is not the Bible can teach you how to be happier. The good news is that we have one who can rescue us. Let me end with this. I heard one of the best descriptions of Silicon Valley I've ever heard recently. Um, This person wrote, you know, you hear about Silicon Valley this and Silicon Valley that, and, you know, obviously that's where all the cool stuff is going on. Well, not all the cool stuff, but a lot of the cool stuff. And uh, this person says this, quote, Silicon Valley has become as much a sensibility as a place. It stands in as code for a set of values, disruption, innovation, informality, and a deep faith in the world-changing power of technology, a culture that's being developed and exported nearly as ubiquitously as the latest iPhone. And then one part, other writer says this, the essence of Silicon Valley is the idea that, quote, there is a clever hack for every new problem. You know what a hack is? If somebody shows you a workaround, if you just do this on your phone, you don't have to go do that complicated thing. You can just do it this way. And, you know, hacks are fun if there's a hack. But there's no hack for death. There's no hack for sin. You either live in captivity or you're rescued. And God so loves the world that he sent his son to rescue us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is the old gospel. And no preacher and no church can make us hear it or feel it or be comforted by it, but you can. So for the person who this morning struggles to believe or can't believe or is cynical or weary, would you show him, show her, Would you shout it into their heart that the good news is true? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.